Benedict, need to see Helen Troyt, need to see the Vikings, need to see Alexander the Great, need to see Quo Vardis, need to see... Be- oh, no, I have seen Ben-Hur. Look, half the reason of this podcast is yeah. for an excuse to see all the films. <laughs> okay, is it recording? Yes, it is now. So uh, don't say anything you wouldn't read on, want to read on the front page. Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this uh, slightly delayed version of When Movies Were Good, featuring um, your two faithful podcast hosters down here in Melbourne, Australia. I, Rachel, and my special guest, the Jonathan Harris of this podcast, Matthew Dusser. What, not good enough for Richard Harris? Yeah. <laughs> Joan Collins, maybe? <laughs> well, uh, I uh, might need a glass of wine before I agree to that title. Yeah, I, I, well, I thought a nice cigar might suit you or at a nice smoking lounge or something like that. Well, I won't say no. You uh, won't but, say no? But yeah, I think we did have a good excuse for taking a bit longer to launch this episode as it uh, took about twice as long to watch <laughs> all the films. They were both over three hours. Yeah, they don't, they don't call these films epics for nothing. So we're doing 1953, The Robe, and 1956's The Ten Commandments, one of the most famous films of all time. Actually, both these films are famous. They fall into the great Hollywood category, especially the classic movie category of epic films along the lines of Ben-Hur, Samson and Delilah. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah, it's like uh, that great decade of huge films, and like you read a lot of histories and it does kind of cynically describe how a lot of those major efforts in production were to try and combat uh, the competition from television but mm-hmm. i think part of it was also just it was such an optimistic age with a uh, big cruise in technology that i think you had that certain amount of uh, great directors that were going for the big haul and the uh, same went on with Cleopatra and others, and so you just had these ones which were so widely successful, and they uh, sort of, I guess, the studios were willing to in- invest to, to sort of um, create really big, powerful films. Yeah, and especially these um, biblical style epic films are, are really. I suppose the audience back in the well the 1950s when these three these two films sorry uh, films were made the audience had an interest in seeing these t- and and the audience was grateful to see these sorts of films whereas now these sorts of films you know I noticed Netflix and a few other things you know they do make films like this but I just don't think it has the resonance that it had back then because yeah any overtly religious films. Uh, like there was the one that Mel Gibson made, uh, what was it, the Jesus on the Cross or something? Uh, oh, the, oh, the, uh, yeah, the crucifix. Uh, yeah, I know what you. I know, we, uh, I know exactly he, what he, he played. He played Jesus, didn't he? <laughs> no, I think that was Jim Caviezel. Oh, the Passion of the Christ. Okay, did, yeah. did Mel Gibson play Jesus? No, Jim Caviezel played Jesus. I haven't actually uh, seen it myself. Uh, okay, um, uh, so I have this very wrong picture in my mind. I mean, obviously I haven't seen it, so I have this very wrong picture in my mind. Uh, but yeah, like uh, generally overtly religious uh, films that uh, depict biblical stories tend to be for a much more confined audience these days. The stories that you see in the ones we're reviewing this week are, yes, they have the moral content the, or moral such a strong word like the uh, uh, the inspirational message but it's kind of assumed that uh, the audience probably has a lot more background knowledge yes exactly and, right. and also that 
in both of these, but particularly in the Ten Commandments, they they try to make it sound very biblical. Now, from a, I I tend to go for much more lean and mean a preference in my dialogue. Yeah. But, uh, but you kind of get where they were coming from. Yeah, I mean, a again, not to take anything away from both of the films, they probably could be a little bit shorter because there's only so much, I mean, with these biblical historicals, I mean, if you, unless you're going to make some massive miniseries over the course of three months or something. Well, DeMille himself yeah. admitted at the beginning of Ten Commandments, yeah. yes, uh, the story takes three, three and something hours, there will be an intermission. So that was the when the director himself creates his own appearance <laughs> at the beginning of the movie to yeah. warn people that we basically we sympathize with your bladders and we'll, yeah. we're going to give you an opportunity to go. Yeah, but um, in the era when movies were good, these were like it was an all day investment of your time. You got dressed up, you went out to the cinema, which is not just like schlepping up to the local shopping centre and going to the movies now. Like it was. Uh, a true outing and occasionally here in Melbourne at a certain theatre called the Astor Theatre they still actually will air the films the way that they were done back then with the intermission and the outro intro yeah. music all that and it's just such a great time out because you know you're going to get that break and then come back in fresh for the second half I mean there was a variety of ways to go to the movies back then I mean there were also little kids that stuck into a theatre to, right. yeah. to see a, a, a scandalous yeah. film noir that yeah. they uh, probably shouldn't all. And of course, there were those that um, uh, took advantage of the darkness of the back row as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose as time marched on, it was less of a special thing to go to the f movies, especially by the time the 60s kind of approached, um, you know, the era of drive-in cinemas and things like that. But it still was more of... Yeah, I, I, I hate to think that, you know, cinema going is dying off because sitting at home just, you know, it doesn't do it for me a lot of the time. But Well, I think people are going to be doing it back with a vengeance. I do need to see my automatist, though. I'm noticing my eyes seem to strain a bit at movie screens lately. So, uh, yes, uh, Doc, you've got to help me. I need to improve my movie experience. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to launch into The Robe which is a 1953 American biblical epic film, which we've discussed. So basically, this one is one of uh, Richard Burton and how we cannot miss Richard Burton's voice. Just the voice alone is, is a fantastic selling point for him in this film. There's, his voice is so remarkable and just that's Richard Burton straight away. So basically, he plays the lead character in this film and... Essentially, it's set in ancient Rome and the time period is uh, 32 to 38 AD. And we've got the beautiful Jean Simmons, who is absolutely spectacular in this film. She and Marcellus um, were involved with each other at some point in time. And basically, the story is more about Burton's character of Marcellus. And he is involved with the crucifixion of Jesus. And after that happens to him, uh, a robe comes into his possession or he comes around the robe that Jesus had before he died and it causes all sorts of problems for him until he goes on a journey himself and comes to some very different conclusions about life and death, good and bad, all sorts of things. And regarding some of the historical elements of what was happening in the Roman Empire at that time. Matt, what are your thoughts on the robe? 
Well, it's been a long time since my grandparents dragged me to Sunday Mass, <laughs> so uh, I can't really call myself a perfect authority in all the religious details. Uh, I do have a archaeology background, but even that uh, is a bit uh, sketchy in this period because I know much more about the Roman Republic, which uh, sort of um, reached its uh, final phase about a hundred years um, before now, or maybe even only fifty. Uh, uh, it was around the time when you went from Caesar to uh, Augustus and stuff. It's it's quite complicated. Yeah, but I. Actually, into it was. Uh, I found that this film aged a lot better than the Ten Commandments. For one thing, the it doesn't go too hardcore with the special effects. It it's much more old-fashioned in its approach, in that it used sort of music to mark the 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 big moments, mm -hmm. and as well as a very large um, uh, Roman sets, and so. It's not relying so much on um, complex special effects like we see in the Ten Commandments, and so in many ways, uh, in an age when we're so used to seeing a variety of uh, complex methods done to create whole worlds uh, with the touch of a button, it, it's probably aged ironically a lot better because it just didn't try too hard with the visual spectaculars. In a way, also, I found part of the because. Even it, you don't have to be um, overtly religious to appreciate a story that has a bit of a good moral idea. And oh, sorry again, I fell into that trap where mm. using the word moral, which is such a strong word. And but simply the idea that you can be encouraged a film where that you can encourage to be nice to each other. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, for both the, uh, of these films, it was kind of a bit too. Big and lavish for my, for my taste a lot of the time. I, like, I love the battle scenes and the Ten Commandments and the like, but as far as the... You can tell that both directors still wanted to have a sort of their sermon on the mount moment, and for that, mm -hmm. personally, I find it's better to have a, a much more simpler format. Like, probably the five minutes in my life when I thought about religious vocation professionally mm -hmm. was when I watched On the Waterfront, when you yeah. simply have that uh, local priest working in a corrupt... Um, union-controlled dockyard and mm -hmm. he's uh, helping someone in that situation and so that much more humbler setting mm -hmm. for me worked a lot better and uh, in a age when people are a lot more cynical and they're not as much so uh, used to um thinking in those big biblical narratives it may not sort of appeal to their hearts in the right way but i did find them to be uh, visually fascinating films but they aren't just flashy substance of battles Mm -hmm. uh, like I first saw the Ten Commandments and uh, when I uh, got the DVD to do a presentation for a tutorial when I was d talking about Egyptian chariots yeah. and so the, that big battle scene with the Red Sea was perfect for it yes. but I still but it isn't just a, a simple theatrics it, they do have a quite a good heart to them yes they do um, just purely from an entertainment perspective I did enjoy this film. I thought some of the I mean, I absolutely love Gene Simmons and just such a beautiful yet another British performer that came across to Hollywood after being seen over there, much like my my beloved, you know who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> he was in the Boris Johnson? No. <laughs> My, my beloved, who I won't continue, Ray, who I will not, because we're not talking about Ray today, but I always talk about Ray anyway. 
Um, oh, but why she, not? she found her way over there and she had started working British films and then came over to Hollywood after being discovered. She was beautiful. She just, you know, along with Anne Baxter, who we'll talk about in the next film, just really suited the sort of period that they were going for. Richard Burton was overly theatric and really fun in the role. Now, we were talking about, was it Jay Anderson who was playing Caligula? Who yes. was, um, you know, would give, I don't know, Julian Clary or someone like that a run for their money in terms of the camp factor <laughs> that he was bringing to the role. But I loved how theatric it was. Actually, a condensed version of some of these films might actually work really well in a big stage production with some flashy special effects. But I really, I think the part I found the most moving in the film was the bits and pieces we actually did see of Jesus himself. And as I was saying to Matt before we... That was beautifully understated, uh, I thought. That was. It, it was. We didn't actually see his face, but everybody knew exactly who it was, um, whether the script had referenced him that way or not. But what I... Um, you know, with these sorts of films, you know, some I was reading a few reviews and, oh, this is historically accurate or inaccurate. The only thing that we can really match to accuracy is the actual Roman and Egyptian history of the pharaohs, of the um, emperors, etc. And then the fable history that they match to in the Bible. So they've actually got a hard job of marrying both a documented history of, you know, people in history, like well-known, you know, Caligula, Pontius Pilate, etc., to actual, or well, I guess Pontius Pilate was he part, he was actually he in, was, the, in the government at the time, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. Yeah, and like uh, supposed to have been the one that, Crucify Christ, like um, yeah. I I actually remember reading uh, because the church obviously tends to talk much more like politicians these days, mm -hmm. and like they are trying to say because one of the main or commonly used prayers um in I don't know if just in the Catholic faith or in a, a broader Orthodox ones, but all, uh, they keep referring to Christ who was crucified by Pontius Pilate, and yeah. <laughs> and um they're trying to say. We're not trying to sort of beat down on uh, Pontius's name, but it's trying to um, uh, get around this misconception that um, Judaism had a key role in his cru crucifixion. Mm. And so it was. it's kind of like, um, uh, again, the church trying to um, create a, use um, Pontius as a politically uh, convenient way to sort of um, uh, remove the... What could what can easily often cause quite a bit of uh, division and hatred, uh, such a uh, uh, core moment in that faith. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of so you take from some people would just look at it as purely a cinematic story that they're watching and they enjoy it for the elements, and then other people, of course, will take things a lot more to a deeper level depending on their religious background. So um, the Rogue was directed by Henry Costa and produced by Frank Ross. The screenplay was by Gina Kaus, Albert Maltz, and Philip Dunn. And it was based on the book The Robe by Lloyd C. Douglas. And, of course, we had some other great people in this cast. We had Victor Mature, who I loved as Demetrius Michael, and Michael Rennie. And the music was done by Alfred Newman. Uh, the cinematography was Leon Shamroy. So, and it was released September 16th, 1953. And the running time is 135 minutes. So it's a... It's definitely investment of your time, but one one worth it. I, I actually did like this one. I thought it was a beautiful film. 
And as we were saying before, if you have a local theatre that does like matinees of these uh, classic epics, uh, try and see them as you can, uh, yeah. uh, you know, as they were meant to be in a big theatre. Uh, take my advice, though, if you're um, uh, prone to needing to go to the bathroom halfway <laughs> through the movie, um, don't get salted popcorn if you're going to have a, a drink or a soda as well, because that actually uh, requires you to go sooner. The, so the salt has a sort of yeah. uh, negative effect on your fluid intake, so go for something salt-free in the snack department. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. <laughs> and moving right along to the Ten Commandments. Mm. Uh, don't you just love the advice that Matt and I dish out? It's it's so needed. I just feel like our advice is just paramount of importance. Well, to not people. many people know that part yeah. about popcorn. I mean, really, it's a vicious cycle. It is. It is. I'm actually a big fan of popcorn. You just gotta be careful of those unpopped kernels, which can wreck your teeth at different points of time. Well, fun fact: in the if, as we go into an Egyptian story, a lot of Egyptians had worn out teeth because the stone. Mills um, that ground the flour for bread um, often uh, got little bits of stones into the bread, and that's how they got worn out teeth. Fun, um, fun facts. Yeah, well, that, that is, you know, it's actually a fun fact because you wonder actually, you know, you see all these Hollywood actors portraying these, you know, ancient people, and it's like, mm, I don't think their teeth were quite like that. I don't think their eyes were. <laughs> In one case, I don't think their wristwatch looked like that. Yeah, that's true. And I think the dye <laughs> job looked like that. So we're going to jump... Now, this film is one of the most famous films of all time in any era, in any country, anywhere around the world. And that's... Sorry, the copyright was too much for real music. <laughs> we have to do our own special effects here because we're obviously running on a budget. But um, Ten Commandments, 1956, three hours and 40 minutes. Yes, folks, you heard it right. Three hours and 40 minutes. Released 5th of October, 1956. Directed and his last film, I believe, by the great Cecil B. DeMille. He'd already in 1923 done a silent version, which once again we do intend on seeing at some point. Uh, and just, you know, the, accol the accolades roll in. We had the brilliant Charlton Heston uh, playing Moses. We had Anne Baxter as Nerfatari. We had the fantastic Gil Brynner as Ramesses. One of my favourite people, Yvonne DiCarlo playing Sephra or Zipra, just depending on how you... And Edward G, who played Dathan. Man, we had some... Fa we had John Derrick in this. We had a lot of fantastic people. Matt, thoughts on The Ten Commandments? Well, I can understand why it would be uh, one of DeMille's last films, because even if, though he, even if he wasn't uh, quite old as he was at the time, such a film like that would have been bloody exhausting yeah. to make. <laughs> Well, it was shot on partially in location in Egypt. And what we were reading before we went on air, that he had something like 10,000 extras in certain scenes with 15,000 animals. That's enough to drive anyone to God, that's a lot. that's a lot of free sandwiches to bring. <laughs> um, this film, it is an investment of time. Uh, if you are religious and you do hold the stories of the Bible sacred, this one will be a fantastic film for you to see and an, an enjoyable experience. Even if you're not that way inclined, if you just want to watch something beautiful, heartfelt, interesting, sure, I mean, there's probably elements of it they could have cut out a few subplots or whatever, but I mean, I think it, it, it was the way it needed to be I love Jill Brenner in this film. I love Ann Baxter in this film. I love the look of this film. And I still think that that special effect of the Red Sea parting, I was saying to Matt before we went on air, that I was watching a mini documentary of all the Red Sea partings in all the different films, modern, 
going back to DeMille's first 1923 effort, which was still pretty good. That was the one done with the jello being cut up and yeah. then running that backwards. I still think this one is the best one because the CGI stuff just doesn't look that good. Well, we were talking back in the Titanic episode how the uh, the digital footage of the uh, sh- of the ship in the background, even though it's only twenty years old and was otherwise the most expensive film of its time, um, I personally don't find it's aged um, uh, that that well. You can sort of tell it's the old computer graphics, yeah. and uh, yeah, that's just the thing with the special effects. Uh, you think you're cutting ahead of your time, but then you realize that sometimes the best way to make your stuff date quickly is to uh, play with the tech of your time yeah it it just sort of so we were reading about how they they so obviously one of the pivotal moments in the story of of Moses is his leading you know his people out of Egypt and he's being chased by the pharaoh of the time the Ulbrunus character and his minions and they need to get across there. He's able to part the sea. They're able to walk through the middle of this ocean that's parted for them, or the sea rather, sorry. They get to the other side and just as the Egyptians are chasing them across, then the sea falls inward back the way it was. And so I think they were using matte effects. They were using um, certain special effects that were spliced into it. Um, Lots of fantastic music to go with it. But it all works together really, really well. Yeah, it's uh, like you are just bowled over by uh, how it uh, went so convincingly to see the water crashing in on the uh, chariots and and everything and that you were able to sort of keep that suspense um, as the Hebrews are marching through the water and... You've got to feel for Moses because, like, every time some other challenge comes through and the people he's saved and they just keep saying, stone him, stone him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And thinking of that part, because uh, knowing the historical Ramses II, who was in real life one of the most uh, uh, powerful and influential influential pharaohs of Egypt, Mm -hmm. he actually... Uh, in real history went through what was a bit of a career embarrassment where early in his career he aspired to be another one of the great expansionist pharaohs and he went on a major campaign and let's just say he got pulled in by a rather basic counterintelligence trick and he barely got out of it alive and when he got back to uh, to his uh, capital, he basically created a sort of, let, let's just say, a, a very optimistic, semi-fictitious narrative. And this is a, <laughs> um, a, a, an episode called um, The Battle of Kadesh, I believe, or Battle of Kadesh. And pretty much he, his, another army division, um, crack army division, just saved him in time. While he was a, before he was about to get kicked out in up the rear by the Hittites, right? And uh, yes, he uh, created a, a very um, yeah. He just uh, basically tried to whitewash the whole incident in stone. And I'm just thinking, he probably would have felt the exact same way if his whole army had gotten wiped out by the clashing <laughs> of the Red Sea. Now this this is kind of a 
when you're doing biblical history, and for those that are kind of um from a that are more lay and don't necessarily have a, a much knowledge of um the history of how a lot of these religious t- texts come together, a great many yeah. of them are sort of a combination of faith text and historical record, and it's just um how we're having to uh, bring the two together. Like um there there are some theories that the moving of the Hebrews through the desert mm-hmm. and in reality, this was um, at a time long before there was actually a distinguishment of uh, of, he- of the Hebrew peoples within the Semitic population. It was a much broader group at that time. And so a yeah. lot of people that have emerged from that since then, like the Palestinians and the uh, and the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew sort of come from that similar joint background. And that was to do with a period when there was a bit of a power vacuum in Egypt, uh, probably caused by a bit of a famine or something. And so there were these sort of um, semi-independent communes um, uh, under the name of the Hyksos peoples. And when Egypt, uh, the central government did regain control, they tried to forcefully remove a lot of them. And so it is a complicated uh, cross between of, um, of uh, fact and faith. Right, but this Ramesses that they talk about... Ramesses the second ...is Ramesses the second, So it's sort of... Because um, apparently they've debated and... But many scholars are inclined to accept that Exodus has King Ramesses in mind. Ramesses the second in mind. Yeah, it's interesting because he's actually... As ancient um, monarchs are looked at, he's actually one of the more revered ones, not only because of... Uh, the lavish building projects he did of the Temple of Abu Simbel, but he yeah. also did one of the first major priest peace treaties between superpowers uh, yeah. with the Hittites, which he did uh, many years after his uh, near-failed campaign with them. And, like, I'm not going to say that he was the some Gandhi of his time mm. that was a peace lover. Uh, we know very well that he wasn't, and he was probably partially forced into it by political circumstance, but the... It, while we know and think of would think of him if we only knew from this story as a tyrant, uh, apparently the UN actually has a copy of that peace treaty he made with the Hittites years later. Oh wow! Uh, in uh, one of their displays because it's regarded as this important uh, document of uh, international unity. Yeah, that's it's it's actually really interesting. Like when you, I mean, you could literally spend years trying to research how, you know, the events of certain things in the Bible fit in with historical events and which leaders they're referring to um what did you think of charlton heston as moses Let, let's start uh, from the beginning uh charlton as well as his father's uh, his father said he they are probably both a lot more american english yeah. um <laughs> for the uh, region than most uh, could readily accept now yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I did think Charlton was a brilliant in the role I think they could have probably um, because like they had like when you consider Lawrence of Arabia came out like not 10 years afterwards they, they could have probably been a bit more sensitive to the region of casting for yeah. SETI yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah Charlton he did have had just the right amount of seriousness He yeah. and he wasn't too out there he was down to earth yeah, I and I, I yeah, I look I thought he I'm sure somebody else could have done a really good job in the role as well. Uh, I've been recently watching, you know, those who listen to our podcast know that I watch um, a lot of eighties TV, especially soaps from that era. 
And Charlton Heston, one of the last major projects that Charlton Heston worked on was he was the star of one of the Dynasty spin-off, The Colbys. So I sat through the two seasons of The Colbys uh, just a few weeks ago. And it was just, he was quite awkward in that show because you're used to seeing him portray Moses and, uh, you know, it's Ben-Hur. He was Ben-Hur as well, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Didn't he have an appearance in Friends as well? Yeah, he, he may <laughs> have. But he, he, you know, he was trying to play this romantic, schmaltzy sort of character. But then there were elements of the character that were sort of epic-like, that he was the head of this conglomerate. You know, you know this huge business and all the rest of it. And Ricardo Montalban was his, you know, sworn arch enemy. So there were sort of epic factors involved in this show. None of them were. What would have been off. a lousy arch enemy compared yeah. to Ramesses II. <laughs> I mean, none of them really were successfully pulled off. I mean, Barbara Stanwyck was playing his sister, so that in itself. And then she apparently walked off. Um, season two because she said it was the biggest load of crap she'd ever worked in. I'm like, Barbara, I'm sure some of the other films you've worked in were more so. But uh, So it was very odd seeing the two of them together and saying this dialogue which was just oh, typical 80s soap dialogue but just coming out of their mouths, no. So I suppose I, you know, um, I grew up watching Charlton Heston in some miniseries that he did, um, Chiefs namely, which I absolutely love and rewatched not that long ago. Uh, sort of towards the end of his career. I do remember when the Colbys was, were on and some of the other appearances he made in the 80s. So he was largely doing television and so was, so was Jack Lemmon and a lot of other um, great classic movie actors as well. Uh, so it, it is great to see him in his prime, but it's also great that he kept acting and like a lot of actors who just loved acting, he just kept going for as long as he could. Yeah, well... It's good when you see an older actor who's uh, that passionate about it that they're not just uh, stopping at the 60 mark. Yeah, exactly. And he was six. I mean, he probably could have, I think, someone 10 years younger in that role on the Colbys who played Jason Colby would have been better. He was like in his late 60s when he was playing Jason, and that was just a little bit too old because he was working opposite Catherine Ross and Stephanie Beecham, who were his love interests, and they were about 20 years younger than him at least. So, uh, you know, maybe not. But it was still, I guess, a coup to get him into that role. And he, you know, believed in what he was doing on the show. Could you imagine if Sean Connery had sort of done <laughs> the, that sort of stuff in his uh, old age? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's actually just amazing. Because Judith Anderson was in this film and Judith Anderson did soaps and stuff as well. Uh, more daytime soaps in the US. So, I mean, look, you know, it's a job and it's a great place to learn and it's almost like doing theatre because you, you're doing a different performance every day. Yeah. So, Mind you, to say it's just a job, apparently working on TV series, especially if your role is uh, quite a major one, it can actually be a lot harder work than film. Oh, absolutely. Especially on, like, soaps where you, you, you're doing new scenes every day or it used to be like that before they changed the way they were shot. But Although I can see from experience working in a, as an extra in Neighbours, it is handy if you have the one uh, uh, set that's used all the time yeah. that's free, free from weather <laughs> conditions because you never had to wait for the tech people to have to reset everything. Yes, that's true. Um, so if you had to, if we're going to do a versus, like the Rogue versus Ten Commandments for you, which one did you like more? Okay, this is... Uh, I am probably going to have people come at me in the knife of the knife for saying mm -hmm. this, but I actually uh, enjoyed the robe more than the yeah. Ten Commandments. Yeah, me too. And th this isn't just, um, it isn't just uh, being uh, uh, prejudiced because of the uh, ageing of special effects, uh, but I think that just simply that there was sort of an extra 
heart in in the robe. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Ten Commandments. It was a. It, it was a, a much even though Demille obviously had big political vision mm-hmm. or big philosophical mm-hmm. ambitions as well for Ten Commandments. I, it it just doesn't have the same um, element to me. And the fact that um, I wasn't so familiar with a lot of the actors in um, in the robe, mm-hmm. uh, like a, everybody knows Yul Brynner in the Ten mm-hmm. Commandments, um, that the not having the sort of glitz of the actors uh, uh, still reaching out to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, if you watch The Robe, you need to see Demetrius and the Gladiators because that's essentially the sequel to The Robe. So that's Victor Mature's character, Demetrius, who goes on and he has his clashes with various people in the Roman government. So I haven't seen that one yet either. I agree with Matt. I did prefer The Robe. It's not that I didn't like The Ten Commandments. I... I really enjoy the Ten Commandments. It is well worth the three hours. I feel a little bit like how I do with Gone with the Wind. It's a big investment of time, but it's worth it. So do see the Ten Commandments, but I just felt from start to finish for me, uh, and I guess having the presence of Jesus in the robe, you know, we see part of his crucifixion. I mean, Jesus is such an enigmatic character for anyone, anywhere, at any time. Even those from different religions, he is this the centre of anything in any film or book that he is a part of, you know, he is this amazing presence on the page, on the screen. So any film with Jesus being portrayed in it, even though we don't see a lot of Jesus physically, he's just implied more that he's there or he's walking off the screen or he's carrying the cross. You don't actually see his face. Uh, I really, to me, but the part that I got really emotional about in the Ten Commandments is when that old woman was going to get crushed by the bricks uh, was going to get crushed, you know, against the wall. Sorry, against the yeah. wall. I um, and they had really I, they had almost I, an identical scene in the silent version. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you, you got to wonder on um, what kind of foreman would be that stupid. Yeah, I just the poor woman. I just I found that really emotional, and that was one of my favourite sequences in the film when, um, you know somebody interjected there and helped her out and all, and all the rest of it and, and then obviously Moses stepped in so I thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of the film some of the, the quieter moments I enjoyed so two films that if you're interested in classic films you, you do need to see them and I want to mention one more thing uh, before we wind up uh, because uh, Yul Brynner who played Farrah Ramsey's we often talk about the cameos that a lot of actors make in other films and yeah. TV series. Uh, to me, I think Yul Brynner did what is probably one of the most important things any major figure has done on the screen because decades later, he um, was diagnosed, I believe, with was it lung, lung or throat can- cancer. Oh, and he was pretty convinced that um, his heavy smoking was the cause of it. And... Mm-hmm. He made a commercial um, to be played after he died with the uh, advice to everyone, whatever you do, don't smoke. So That's right. It's a very haunting commercial. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so as a kind of a nod to him, I'd, I'd like to say um, uh, tip of the hat to him for doing that message. And um, uh, we should probably continue that same message to audiences. That's a, a, a very... Um, sad but necessary thing to say yeah they occasionally used to play that ad on tv here and i was quite young when they used to play it and it was very haunting seeing you know because he was quite gaunt and everything the cancer had really taken a hold of him then and even just reading about 
you know, because he performed the king and the king and I all through his career after he initially played him. And he was sort of still playing him even in the 80s, I think it was, when he passed away. And he was kind of being dragged around the stage by the woman playing Anna because he just physically couldn't do the dance routine with her for Shall We Dance. And just, you know, coming off the stage gasping for air and just looking gaunt. And you don't like to think of somebody like that like that. So, yeah, you're right. It was a good message and it was good that he had the the knowledge and the wisdom to sort of want to share that because I'm sure it did deter a lot of people from smoking. Well, you, you hope it did. And, like, yeah, people just need to be reminded from that constantly, I, uh, I suppose. Yeah. Well, thank you once again for joining us on When Movies Were Good. So we start with the... You know, someone wrote us a comment, and <laughs> which is fine, but thank God someone's, someone's listening to us. But they sort of had said, oh, what you don't think such and such is a good movie and this and that. But the premise of the podcast is when movies were good. So all of the movies are good. It's just elements of the films that we like more or less or did we think it was worth the hype. But compared to what comes out of Hollywood now, all these movies are good. Exactly. And like... Uh... Yes, you yeah. uh, will. When you're discussing something, uh, you, you compare what you like and don't like sometimes, and it, that it can just uh, be the flow of conversation. Although, um, I think um, it is it would be an interesting episode if we were to come up with a theme of uh, two really bad films. Like, could we find from the right t- from that time period two really oh, bad sure films and make that the yeah. theme, the theme of, the, of the show? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we could. We might have to sort of do some of our own independent watching, and then we'll come back with a film from the era, um, sort of from the silent era to 1959 that we didn't like. Um, or we couldn't stand at all and couldn't make it through the film. Yeah, like a real, I find a really bad one. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I know they're, they're out there, but still they'll be head and shoulders above anything that Hollywood is producing now. And speaking of current Hollywood films, uh, King Kong versus Godzilla or Kong versus Godzilla or whatever, this CGI machination, whatever it is, I will go and see it because... I've seen the other modern Hollywood versions. I mean, I don't think it can touch... The, Godzilla can ever be touched unless it's by the Japanese who just do it so well. But I will be going to see it. And Matt and I... Uh, Matt actually suggested doing a theme for our next podcast for when movies were good. So we're going to do 1933 King Kong. Yes. We did want to do Godzilla 19... Was it 50? 50... 55, 54. 50, yeah. But it's, but it's uh, proving rather hard to find. The, the Jap, you know, it was made by Toho. And, you know, it's such a famous film. But funnily enough, it's not that easy, at least here in Australia, for us to, you know, unless we buy a copy of it, or which we wouldn't rule out doing. But uh, so we can't get that really I actually available. haven't seen it in DVD stores either. And yeah. that just uh, seems to be how it is in Australia at the moment. Because, like, I've been to America and there are streaming services. They have a lot of more older films. Yeah, so... Uh, um, so if anyone knows where we can actually watch Godzilla, please let us know, being based here in Australia. but we're Pre- gonna do... Preferably legal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do... Whoops, there goes the pen again. We're going to do King Kong 1933 and Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1956. You know, when things start going terribly wrong and some mutated force, you know, comes into the earth, even the shape of a giant ape or, um, you know, you know, plants or whatever... 
Apparently, King Kong was Hitler's favorite film. Now, if that's the, not a, go a good recommendation, I don't know what is. Yeah, exactly. And if you've got any ideas for films that we can pair that you think might be, we're going to do like some Universal Monsters pairing, like obviously Dracula and Frankenstein and Wolfman and Mummy, a few things like that. But uh, there's so many films to go through. But if there's anything that you've got an idea for, please let us know. Anything that was made up until 1959. Exactly. Even if it was played after that year yeah that's not the time frame we work within yeah definitely so in the meantime i'm rachel i'm matthew and we're watching good movies thank you and good night